Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Judd Apatow. So how do you feel before a big film opens? I mean, this film is not just a big Hollywood film. There's a lot of you in this movie. It's clearly a, a personal film. We'll talk about that later. But what is it like in the, in the sort of weeks leading up to the release? I'm still thrown by the whole larger-than-life comment. <laughs> I don't know if my wife would agree with that. Um, we come out in about a week and a half. And I, I feel pretty good. They tell me that they think people will go. <laughs> and that's important. I've had them not go before. <laughs> and that does not feel as good. Right. Uh, and the first few reviews have uh, piddled in and seem like uh, they, 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 they won't haunt me at night. Mm-hmm. And, and they like the movie. Uh, and, and some people really like the movie. And some people hate my fucking guts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I you know it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good, healthy mix. There's always a few people that just don't get it at all. And they're just like, Catherine Hagel should have had an abortion. You're like, what? <laughs> really? Then what would I do? That would happen at minute eight. Right. And then what happens? Seth uh, Rogen moves into an apartment with Martin Starr. I don't know. And of course, the question, you know, the, peop- the thing that people always said, it's like, why would anybody go out with Seth Rogen? Um, and we've seen him, you know. That's so anti Semitic, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the code? <laughs> Shiksa goddess shouldn't be near the Jews. <laughs> Diane Keaton was pretty cute. I think so. How'd Woody Allen get her? <laughs> And you've done all right yourself, haven't you? I have my own Shiksa goddess, yes. <laughs> uh, we're going to, uh, about to travel back in time a bit, but I wanted, but um, it struck me that the title, Funny People, which seems so sort of simple at first, like a bunch of, pe- you know, funny guys you're going to laugh at, but I think it actually has like sort of multiple meanings, because I think it, in your films and the film that we're going to see later kind of suggests that there's something a little off or odd about comedians. So. Uh, that's what we were going for. You never know if, if your title is going to be good or not. I thought of it, oh, funny people. Uh, someone at Universal said it, it's, it's, it'd be good to have funny in the title because <laughs> it shouldn't just be called Adam Sandler in the death movie. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, it's, you know, funny people, that's good. And then someone's like, there's a Sarah Jessica Parker movie called Smart People. It didn't make that much money, so I don't know about the word people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but it seems to not sicken people, right. uh, and 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 I like it. And it is meant to say people who are a little bit off. And I, I think they're doing a good job getting it out there what the what the tone of the movie is. We, we, we at first really told people basically the outline of some of the story, and now we're trying to remind people that it is hopefully very funny, as you'll find out in about five hours. Uh, <laughs> This is like the, the longest night of your lives. 
People have no idea. The Q&A is before the two-hour and 25-minute movie. Okay. They don't seem to mind. I hope you have your Red Bull ready. (laughs) I don't mind when I know it's going to be long. You know, you you do walk into, you know, the Titanic kind of ready to, like, sit in your chair differently so your back doesn't go out. Yeah, or the sorrow and the pity. Exactly, which I just watched this morning. Um, (laughs) So, but... if we take a break after the Q&A, I think uh, it, it'll be fine. I think they're up for it. I wouldn't worry about it. Yes. Uh, but I, I did want to... Uh, I said we're going to go back in time, and you've really been involved and obsessed maybe even with comedy from a very early age, and um, you tape-recorded um, interviews with comedians when you were in high school. Um, so what I, what I want to do is uh, the first clip that we have, this is actually an audio clip, but this is an interview uh, for the Comedy Club, which is a radio show on the 10-watt radio station of Syosset High School. Hi, this is Jerry Seinfeld. I'm a well-known comedian. If you listen to Club Comedy on WKWZ in Syosset, which is where you are, you might as well, because it's with Judd Apatow. I don't know if you know this guy. If you've ever seen him... He is an incredible, incredible guy. I mean, just to look at him is an unbelievable experience. I like to talk about your uh, type of comedy that you do. Mm-hmm. How do you describe it? It's sort of it's funny. Ob- <laughs> observational with like a twist on it. It's not, some people just tell the joke, like an observation, and that's it. But you add a whole new dimension on it. Yeah. Well, it's one thing to see something, you know, and I think the next step is to do something with it, you know. Uh, like I'm, I'm uh, doing this routine now about um, this guy that was on That's Incredible last year that caught a bullet between his teeth. <laughs> and it's like you see a thing like that and you go, what the hell is that? You know, I mean, a guy catches a bullet between his teeth. And now I don't know what's funny about that, but I, I think to myself there is something funny about that. And that's what I like to do. Other comedians do different kinds of things, you know, but that's what I want to do. And I'm, so I've explored that, and I think, you know, what job did he have before he got into doing that? What made him go, you know, I'd rather be catching bullets between my teeth? You know, and uh, I don't know, just I have a whole routine about it, but to me that's funny, you know. I don't know, that's the way my mind works, I guess. So um, tell us about the, the shows that you did, because it seemed like you really were, were training yourself. There was um, Peter Bogdanovich, uh, very early in his career, interviewed directors. He interviewed John Ford and all the great Hollywood directors, and he really had an idea of, of sort of using this to, to help him learn. And be- well, that was uh, embarrassing to listen to. <laughs> that was me uh, before I lost my New York accent, which I didn't lose on purpose, but... It did go away, and I think Arnold Schwarzenegger's been in the country longer than I've been alive, and I don't understand why he still has his accent. (laughs) I think he is full of shit. (laughs) It will drift away. And that is, uh, the voice was still maybe not at its deepest level at that point. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, when I was young, I wanted to figure out how can I talk to comedians? I just wanted to talk to them. How How do you get to them? That's what most young boys think. Uh, and so I got a job as a dishwasher at a comedy club, and then I realized I'm in the kitchen. I got to get outside. I got to get in the showroom. So I became a busboy 
because I realized that was a mistake. And, and then I thought, well, none of these guys will talk to me. I need to find a way that they have to talk to me. <laughs> so I, I, my friend who's here, Josh Rosenthal, we worked at the, at the radio station at our high school, and he would come back and he would say, hey, I just interviewed R.E.M., and I'd be like, who the fuck are they? <laughs> and they're this new band. And uh, he'd have their autograph and a little tape. And, hmm, maybe I could do that with comedians. So I started calling comedians. And I'd say, Hi, I work for WKWZ Radio. It's <laughs> at Long Island. <laughs> and uh, they wouldn't know that I was 15 years old. And then I'd show up with a tape recorder as big as this table. <laughs> And they would give me a look like, I can't believe I need to talk to this child for an hour. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I remember Jerry Seinfeld's apartment. I recorded that in his, uh, his apartment, which is also a thing young boys should do at that age. Is, <laughs> is go in apartments with uh, comedians. Uh, and, and he didn't have any furnishing. He certainly didn't spend a lot of time on... Uh, I think he does better now in the Hamptons. He has better furnishings in that apartment. I don't think there was anything on any wall... It was pure comedy uh, in his life uh, at that point. No time to look for a new lamp. Uh, and he was, incre- as you could hear, unbelievably nice, right? The nicest man on earth. Now, here's the funniest, funniest part. Six months later, I call him again and say, hey, let's do another interview. And he says, well, why would I do that? And I said, well, you do The Tonight Show more than once. <laughs> And then he does it. He literally does another interview with me. Wow. <laughs> so he is the greatest man ever. And as a, I, I, when I was young, I mean, this is many years before Seinfeld, uh, I would see him on The Tonight Show, and I just thought, well, that is the funniest guy I've ever seen, uh, ever. And, and, and so a lot of these people I interviewed before, they were famous, Jay Leno and, and Paul Reiser and, and people like that. Uh, and... And one by one, then I went, okay, Saturday Night Live. I'm going to have to knock down every original writer. So I'm like, okay, I'll do Alan Zweibel. And I'll do Guido Sarducci. And Al Franken and Tom Davis. And I interviewed like most of the original writers from Saturday Night Live. Uh, and, uh, and then I said, oh, what about Harold Ramis? What about John Candy? What about Howard Stern? And so I had all these interviews, of which maybe three aired. I literally didn't even bother airing them because uh, <laughs> they were more for me. Not that our signal could get out of the parking lot. <laughs> if you close the yeah. door in your car, you would lose the signal. <laughs> um, uh, but they, they, told me, uh, they told me things that were very, very uh, helpful. Of course, the big comedian at that time was um, Steve Martin, who was like a rock star. I mean, I remember seeing him at the Nassau Coliseum, you know, doing concerts for 20,000 people. But, and you sort of tracked him down, I guess? I, I mean, you... Well, I, you know, I could not have been more obsessed with Steve Martin. It took me years to stop talking in that wild and crazy guy voice. Uh, and I was in California. I was about 12 years old, and we knew where his, his house was. Uh, and so we would just drive by it all the time. Like, that's Steve Martin's house. It's white, like his suit. And, uh, and then one day, we drive by, and there he is, like, outside, washing his car or something. And I jump out of the car. I'm like, give me a piece of paper and a pen. And I got to talk to him. And, and so he, I, I walk over to him and, and I say, uh, Mr. Martin, can I have your autograph, please? And he said, uh, no, I'm sorry. I don't sign autographs at my house. Uh, and I said, well, will you sign it in the street? <laughs> Which was pretty good for 
12, 13. <laughs> and he said, no, I'm really, really sorry, but I, I, I can't do it because then people will come by all the time. Uh, and looking back, in, an incredibly polite man who's 100% right, if, if people walked up to my door, you know, I would have a heart attack. I wouldn't just say no, I would move. <laughs> you know, people know where I live, what's, what's going on? Uh, so I was very upset that he wouldn't sign the autograph. I didn't understand how appropriate it was to not sign the autograph. So I went home and I wrote him a letter. And the letter basically said, Dear Mr. Martin, I think you're the funniest guy on earth, but you treat your fans like shit. <laughs> if I didn't buy all your records and go to all your movies, you wouldn't live in that house. So if you do not send me uh, an apology, I will send your address to Homes of the Stars, and you will have tour buses passing by 24 hours a day. <laughs> and so I had my grandmother put it in his mailbox. <laughs> which may be the best part of the whole thing. Grandma Molly walking up to the mailbox. That fucking guy wasn't nice to my son, that son of a bitch. So then maybe like a long time later, like six months later, a, uh, a package came in the mail. And, it said, and inside were two books of Cruel Shoes, this book that he, he wrote back then of short stories. And I opened it up, and it said, uh, To Judd, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was speaking to the Judd Apatow. <laughs> And he underlined the, the three times. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was just one of those moments that, you know, it really, I, I, you know, I always told the story as a funny story. And then when I was working on this, you know, I thought about it a little bit more. And what I realized the significance of it was, was that I, I dreamed of being a part of that world where comedians live. And him sending me the book was, you know, felt like, this is possible. I must have made him laugh. He would not have sent me the book. He wouldn't have sent me the book with a joke in it. He just, it, it, so it made me believe like maybe I could, I could do this because I made the guy that I worship more than anyone on earth care enough to do this. So I, I am in forever, I'm forever in his debt, but more in his debt for telling that story constantly. <laughs> uh, I'll ask one more question about your, the early years. We're not going to do your um, in- I don't know, every moment of your, your life, but I want to ask about... One thing that was interesting was, uh, that I read was that you audio-taped um, S- Saturday Night Live episodes and then replayed them and listened to them. And I, what was interesting to me about that was that I think uh, in all your work, you have such a sort of feel for dialogue and the kind of rhythm um, of how people talk. And, and you really listened. I mean, the idea that you would sort of play back these tapes and really listen to them. Not just because they were funny, but I feel like you were sort of studying the rhythm of how people Well, talk. back then, there, there weren't VHS recorders. So I, I would record them on audio tape because you also didn't know which episodes of Saturday Night Live would be rerun. And so back in 1975, 76, <laughs> you, the show would come on and you would think, if I miss it, I may never see this again <laughs> for the rest of my life. <laughs> Unless someone creates some sort of technology <laughs> where you can have a computer of some kind and get it in two seconds. Uh, but back then, it seemed I was frantic. I couldn't miss the show. And of course, you'd spend the entire day going, I'm not going to fall asleep during Saturday Night Live. I'm not going to fall asleep. And like eight minutes in, you're like... <laughs> you know. uh, but, uh, but 
I did. And I also, I don't know the significance, but I also recorded The Twilight Zone. So <laughs> I don't know what that says about me personally, but I, those were the two shows I recorded right. and listened uh, to. So, I mean, I, I want to now show, um, we're going to, just a moment, look at a scene from, from Freaks and Geeks, because I think it's just um, three of the geeks, I guess, sitting around talking, and it, and it really has this quality, I said, of just sort of capturing the rhythm of how people talk in a way that's truthful and funny. So let's, let's look at the clip from Freaks and Geeks. I don't get it. What do they have that we don't? Good bodies. So he can throw her over his shoulder. Big deal. He should use his legs more. He's going to throw out his back. I don't know. I mean, my mom says that women prefer guys with a good sense of humor. But you're not very funny. Screw you. I'm hilarious. Oh, how witty. Get this guy on Hollywood Squares. I overheard that Todd Schellinger takes off his shirt when he makes out. Why would he do that? Why would anybody do that? Probably to show off his chest hair. I know that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Go ahead, laugh. But all cool guys have hairy chests. <laughs> Selleck, Reynolds, Rockford. Hey, what about Mork? <laughs> He's got more hair on his hand than Sam has in his pits. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> Will girls ever like us? I think our best play is to go for the smart, sexy, librarian type. You know, she's sweet and shy, but then she takes off her glasses and... (laughs) You like Bailey on WKRP in Cincinnati? Yep. But Cindy Sanders is, like, a librarian type. Yeah, librarian for the Playboy Mansion. This push-up's too hard to push up. Oh, oh, gross. Oh, you're sick. Oh, Oh my God, it's cold. Now, I realize you have Adam Sandler also sucking on Popsicle. And there's some, there must be some symbolic uh, yes, thing about it. It's very this. different. You'll see. It's a very different Popsicle situation. <laughs> I, I don't know if my, my wife now realizes that she is Bailey from WKRP in Cincinnati. <laughs> that, that was the dream. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, I like that scene. Uh, I remember shooting it, but the other thing you need to remember about Freaks and Geeks is we, we had seven and a half days to shoot those shows, so part of my directorial style was, what if the three of them sat there and never moved? <laughs> <laughs> and then I would just put two cameras on them and... And, and, and all that stuff with the push-up pop was obviously a little bit improvised, and, and, and that's something that you know, we always look to do, is especially at the end of scenes, to just let it kind of drift off into their crazy world with each other. And, and a lot of times, things like that would happen. But that sort of clean style is something that you've kept. I mean, it's, you, know, you did that when you were, were doing episodic TV, but you don't have a really gimmicky camera style, I mean, which I think is is one of the nice things about the way you direct. I mean, you let people talk. You let, let the scenes kind of breathe. I mean, for me, I, I, always like, I always loved movies like Diner and The Last Detail, where it, it, it just felt 
like it was actually happening. And, and with this new movie, uh, Janusz Kaminski was a cinematographer, and, and he really understood how to capture what, what I want to capture, but also to step it up visually and do something uh, where that was a more important element of the movie. So uh, the camera might move a little bit <laughs> from here to here, but, not, but it's better. And um, what was the, um, you know, sort of your memory of, of uh, first of all, of making Freaks and Geeks, the kind of collaborative atmosphere, and then, um, you know, to have it, have it canceled. Like, it was, it, it feels like it must have been such a great show to be making, you know, working with a great team of writers and actors. Well, I mean, my friend Paul Feig created Freaks and Geeks, and he had a real vision of what he wanted it to be like. He wrote a hundred-page Bible that said every band that each character liked exactly what their clothes were and he has a photographic memory uh, of every moment that's ever happened in his entire life and when you ask him about something from like third grade he actually remembers what people said uh, I won't remember you tomorrow uh, <laughs> I, I have no memory and uh, I spend my, my whole life uh, dealing with the fact that it's just slowly turning to mush and I, I didn't smoke enough pot to lose my, that much memory, uh, but uh, my wife claims I'm not breathing deeply enough. And my shallow breathing is uh, killing my brain cells. But, so Paul Feig's tone was very inspiring to me because he really knew what, what he wanted to do there. Uh, and uh, he knew the geeks a little more than the freaks, so we opened it up freak-wise to almost anyone. Anyone could be a freak when we cast it and we found... Seth and Jason and James, and then we, we, we had Paul rewrite it for these actors that we found. Um, and it, it was a great experience. We knew we'd be canceled immediately. It was just, you know, the, there was a new head of uh, NBC uh, brought in after we did the pilot, and he told us that he, he, he didn't understand the show because he went to private school. And, and so I said to Paul, maybe you should write the finale. I just have the finale. And so Paul went off and wrote the finale, and we shot the finale early in the run, assuming uh, that it was going to end suddenly and we would want to have a conclusion to our, our story. Um, one of the things about the show is that it seems so drawn from real life. There's a, there's a sort of famous scene where uh, Martin Starr's character watches Gary Shandling on the Dinah Shore show, which I think is something that's sort of drawn from... Your life. Um, could, I want to ask you about Gary Shandling because I think he was an important influence and this idea of drawing from real life, um, which he's so great at. Was um, and you worked on the Larry Sanders show. Could you talk about how important Shandling was to your sort of outlook on on comedy? Uh, you know, Gary's first uh, sh- show, uh, it's Gary Shandling show, uh, was drawn from his life. Uh, I. Uh, I bought his house when I was working for the Larry Sanders show. And his house, the set for It's Gary Shandling Show was based on Gary's actual house. So when I bought Gary's house, I basically lived on the set of It's Gary Shandling Show. Uh, and as you know from that show, that was about a comedian. And it was, uh, and he, he, was uh, he broke the, the fourth wall. But it was, it was also, you know... Uh, Specifically, a, a funny version of his world with the Larry Sanders show. It, it became, uh, although a fictional, a fictional character based on a fi- fictional character, thing, things that would happen to Gary were constantly put into the show. 
so, for instance, uh, Gary's girlfriend was uh, at the time was on the show as Hank's assistant, Linda, and uh, we were we decided to do an episode where she would get an offer to be a cover girl for Playboy magazine, uh, and so then we called up Playboy magazine to get their permission, and they said yes, and then we we wrote the episode, and then in the middle of it, they called and said we actually would like her to be. <laughs> in Playboy magazine. And that, you know, wall of mirrors would happen all the time. Uh, I remember Dana Carvey did a very cruel impression of Gary uh, on Saturday Night Live, and he was apologizing to Gary. I didn't write it. I'm so sorry. And Gary says, it's, it, it's fine. You just have to come on the Larry Sanders show, and we'll talk about it. And, and then they wrote an episode where, where Dana Carvey subs for him and kept, keeps doing this mean impression and how much it bothers Larry. Uh, so, you know, I saw that there were ways to, to do that, and I never thought about writing about my life because I, I, I couldn't think of anything less interesting than my own life. Uh, but slowly, during Freaks and Geeks, I would pitch out some of my uh, young life stories from when I was young, and, and I... Realized when we did the scene uh, with Martin watching the Dinah Shore show, which was shot to a song by The Who, that that it probably was my best work, and that maybe I should work work up the courage to to do more personal writing. And were you? Uh, when did you decide to go into film? Was it after? I, mean, I, would, had... I would always go into film after a TV show was canceled. <laughs> and after a film bombed, I would go back to TV. <laughs> and so I did that for 10 years. I would lick my wounds in a different medium. And after Undeclared was canceled, I, I had been uh, developing uh, Anchorman with uh, Will Ferrell and, and Adam McKay, who wrote it, and Adam directed it. And uh, that was the first movie I did okay. post all the TV shows going uh, down. Well, we have, and so, that's, so we have a scene from Anchorman, which... Um, you can probably guess the scene we're going to show, but it's the the the, ga- the fight scene. Well, let's see the scene. So it's about um, a, ga- a gang war among news crews. So yes. I think it kind of speaks for itself. Um, so let's watch this memorable moment from Anchorman. Not so fast, you ingrates! Public news team is taking a break from its punch drive to kick some ass. No commercials. No mercy! Como están, bitches? Spanish language news is here. Tonight's top story. The sewers run red with Burgundy's blood. Like we got ourselves a bilingual blood fest. Now, before we do this, let's go over the ground rules. Rule number one no touching of the hair or face. Of course. And that's it! Now, let's do this! Begin! 
I did not see that coming! Now I'll be number one. No, you won't! Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. <laughs> so tell, tell us about how that scene came about. I read that that was that your idea to have this. Well, I mean, that's actually a decent example of uh, producing, which is Adam always had these great scenes with Vince Vaughn where they would almost fight, and they would almost fight, uh, and and... This is my only contribution. Maybe they should fight. <laughs> and then Adam wrote that. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, those guys are just insanely, insanely funny. And uh, you know, seeing all those guys working together at the same time, you know, basically with no one paying any attention from the studio, you know, it was, it was a, a great time, and we laughed our asses off every second. We could not have been more amused at every stage of making that movie. And I'd be watching the movie for the 300th time and editing and laughing just as hard at some weird thing Steve Carell was doing in the background that I never noticed before. Um, and uh, it's much different than watching a movie like Funny People 300 times because it's emotional and, 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 and upsetting at times and funny at times. So watching it an enormous amount of, uh, yeah. of times is not as amusing as watching uh, Brick eat a banana. <laughs> But there is. I wanted to ask if you also um, contributed a bit of the. Um, there is a love story. I mean, Ron Burgundy is is trying is in love, um, and and that there is some emotional, um, you know, arc there um, to the you know amidst all the madness of the movie. So is that something that you? I always think these movies work better when you actually care about something, and uh, and so <laughs> that was the dance with this movie. Is is there anything that you actually will track in this story? <laughs> And so it seemed important that you liked Ron Burgundy and thought he was a good guy down deep below his sexism. And so they, you know, Adam wrote that great scene where he talks to his dog about his life and, and, <laughs> and Baxter makes him feel better. Uh, and then they wear the same pajamas and go to bed. <laughs> but uh, their initial draft, was, was, it had all of these elements in it, but basically it was about Anchorman flying to an Anchorman convention. And they in midair hit a, 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 some sort of like UPS plane and they crash into a mountain and then it becomes like the movie Alive. <laughs> and all the anchormen start dying and they start eating each other. And occasionally uh, the contents of the UPS plane, uh, which was monkeys with, and throwing stars, attack their base camp. <laughs> And we sent that around, and it was so funny, but we couldn't get anyone to make it. And, uh, and I said, you know, and I really said, I'm not going to be the guy to say no to that. So, like, let's really beg everyone, beg them again. Okay, now, what about this little section with this love story with the woman who is the first female anchor? And, and then Adam and Will uh, created the, you know, a, a script that focused on that. I mean, you, I mean, you had a background in, in sketch comedy. You did the Ben, you know, ben Stiller show. Um, but you were kind of moving towards uh, much more 
simple kind of emotionally direct style. So, so um, what I want to do now, the first film, of course, that you directed was a 40-year-old virgin. I want to show the scene from that because the, the scene that we're going to see um, directly relates to the conception of the film, how the film came about. I was sleeping with a woman recently. She had the tits were unbelievable. Oh, man, I love titties, so. And uh, so we're doing it, and I'm about to finish, and her dog starts licking my ass. Oh, do I? I swear to God. And I, I, I have to decide, do I finish or do I stop the dog? I know your nasty ass. He finished. I finished. And then I stole the dog. <laughs> no, I didn't, but... <laughs> you know, sometimes Amy and I would make love, because it was almost like we weren't two people, but we were two spirits or something, or... Our souls were connected in this way I can't describe it. Time stood still. It was like we were sharing the same heart. Stop, man. Why do you always come and kill the vibe with those things? Sharing the same heart? That's like some Britney Spears shit, man. This is three grown-ass men. Don't nobody want to hear that shit? Yeah, man. Come on. Nobody wants to hear that shit. Thank you, Andy. Dude, you've been, you, you broke up two years ago. You, like, get over it at some point. Two years, man. You need to get past that because no ass is worth thinking that much about. I always say. Andy, do me a favor. Would you please help him redeem himself by telling a real sex story? Yes. Uh, I don't... You know what? I'm, I'm a gentleman and I don't... You know, I don't kiss and tell. Fuck it, I raise you. Nastiest <laughs> shit you've ever done. I'm talking about nasty. Uh, wow. So many stories are running through my head right now. I dated this girl for a while and she was really a nasty freak. She just loved to get down with sex all the time. She was like, any time of day, she was like, yeah, let's go. I'm so nasty. And I'd be nailing her. Oh shit. She'd be like, oh, you're nailing me, cool. She talked dirty to you? Oh, she loved to dirty talk. Totally into it. She'd be like, yeah, let's screw. Let's, I wanna. Fuck. God, it was so dirty. She'd be like, oh, me so horny, me love you long time. So. So, so, so what was the titties like? Bro? Yeah, describe her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, she had great tits. Oh, no, 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 no. But I mean, like, detail, though. Does she have, like, you know them little pink teeny nipples? Oh, yeah. Or, like, or like the long National Geographic nipples? Long. You have, like, the, the bumpy Braille nipples, the Stevie Wonders? Yeah, they were nice. You know, and, like, you grab a woman's breast, and it's... And you... You feel it, and it feels like a bag of sand when you're touching it. Bag of sand? You know what I mean. Why don't we just play? Why don't we just deal the cards? What are you, what are you talking about? Have you ever felt a breast before, man? Yes. Dude, are you gay? No, I'm not gay. I've been with tons of women. I touched a guy's balls at Hebrew school once. Dude, it's not a big deal. You like to fuck guys. I'm cool with it. I got friends that fuck guys. In jail. No, I'm not gay. No, I've borked a lot of women in my day. You've borked? Hold up, hold up, hold up. Yo, answer this question. Are you a virgin? <laughs> Are you a virgin? Yeah, yeah, not since I was 10. It all makes sense. You're a virgin. I am. Shut up. How does that happen? He's a fucking virgin. Oh, I knew it. That makes so much sense, man. Look, he's a virgin. You guys, wait, 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 you guys are hilarious. All right, all right, all right. Come on, don't be mean. I'm not being mean. I'm yeah. trying to help the pot now. I'm trying to say I want to get you laid, dude. I, I understand what's going on you here, You guys right? are so up your asses. From now on, your dick is my dick. I'm getting you some pussy. 
So first of all, Steve Carell is, you know, who's now like such a big comedy movie star, was not an obvious choice at the time to like be the lead in a in a big comedy. So could you talk about sort of how that casting came about and how the idea? Uh, well, when we when we were all young comedians, it was always like, you know, could you get a break? You know, would someone let you be in a movie? And it was really really hard. So I've always been a fan of people who haven't been the, the stars of movies being the lead because that's what we all you know, were trying to do and, and that was the impossible dream. You know, how, how is Adam Sandler going to star in a movie? And, and ultimately he had to write his own movie, but that was the, the wall you couldn't get through. Uh, so we never thought it was fair. Like, why can't you be the star? I mean, if you're funny, you should be allowed to be the star. Uh, and Carell, when we were shooting Anchorman, was so funny. I mean, he's funny just holding a hand grenade. Um, <laughs> that I just said, hey, do you have any ideas? And he said, well, I got this idea where I play a 40-year-old virgin. And I thought, I understand that. <laughs> that is not foreign territory. Uh, so we sat down and, and outlined the movie, and, and he, he was great. And what was it like now? You, know, uh, you had directed, of course, some episodes uh, of the TV series, but now you're directing a feature film. So what was, what was um, that experience like? Uh, you know, it, it was uh, it was fun. They they shut down the movie after two days uh, because they thought that Steve looked like a serial killer. <laughs> he was wearing that, that brown jacket, and they thought he looked like Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> and 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 they they thought that Paul Rudd was too fat. And I was like, I don't really know what I can do about the Paul Rudd thing. That's how he showed up. Uh, <laughs> And I think that they were concerned because what Steve was doing was a little more Buster Keaton-ish than Jerry Lewis-like, and he was going for more of a deadpan idea. Uh, but then they let us start up again, and we just added a lot of serial killer jokes into the script, and, and suddenly we were on our way again. It was uh, very strange. And, and one of the things I think that you sort of got right away as a director is, uh, is this ability to mix just raunchy, vulgar material um, and, and sort of real stuff that people connect to. I mean, it's one of the things that movies like Fast Times and Ridgemont High, some of the um, like teen sex comedies of the 80s like, you know, got. Like those movies um, were crude, but they were also more truthful than a lot of sort of drama, you know, Hollywood drama. Yeah, Jennifer Jason uh, Lee gets an abortion in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and it is not played for comedy. Yeah. Uh, that's the abortion Catherine Heigl should have gotten, now that I think about it. <laughs> but he, he was, uh, uh, you know, they were able to pull that off, Amy Heckerling and Cameron Crowe. And, and that actually is one of the movies we always refer to. You'll see the poster in Funny People because it, more than any other movie, has insanely funny scenes. And then they, they also play completely straight in terms of the world of, of high school. And I, I remember uh, when we were shooting The 40-Year-Old Virgin, there was a scene where Catherine Keener starts screaming at, at Steve because he won't have sex with her. And, and she says, uh, you're a 40-year-old man and you ride a bike to work. And Carell says, uh, Einstein rode a bike. And, uh, and she says, yeah, and Einstein had a wife who he fucked. <laughs> but she didn't say it as a joke, and it was kind of rough. Uh, uh, and, and then when we screened it, it, it got a gigantic laugh, and, and it, 
occurred to me, oh, we can move a little closer to this terrain and people yeah, that still was a, enjoy it. That was a terrific scene because that was a fight. You know, they, they're about to have sex finally, but she breaks a toy. You know, the, uh, He's looking for an excuse not to have sex. So when the toys fall off the bed, he panics about this, whether or not the, uh, the cardboard of the toys has been compromised. <laughs> <laughs> And, and you left Who would ever fuck him again after that is the question. <laughs> right. Well, that's, that's it. You have these characters who, uh, you know, you really have mixed feelings about. I mean, you seem interested in, in, in that. You know, it's, um, I, I was thinking there are some comedies, like, like Pretty Woman is an example that popped into mind, where, like, you know deep down that Julie Roberts is, like, terrific and, and um, you know, she's in a bad situation. It's more like a situation comedy. But you, you love to show people who... Um, you know, where you just can feel different ways about them. I, I think that it's, a, you know, it's important, in, in my movies at least, to not have uh, antagonists. So there really are no bad guys in the movies. There's just life and the normal obstacles that everybody faces. There's not someone out to get anybody. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's enough of an obstacle for comedy, <laughs> just your day. And I, I wanted to ask in particular about Seth Rogen as a performer because he, if anybody can, you know, sort of feels like an alter ego or somebody who, we've, who has been there sort of in almost everything you, you've done, it feels like. Um, what, what, what is it about him? What qualities about him, um, in, you know, interest you? Uh, Seth is, uh, I, I've thought about that a little bit lately. Uh, and I think Seth maybe you know, I wasn't a very, I wasn't a great comedian. I didn't have a lot of charisma. I wasn't that interesting a person that you want to watch me for a great period of time <laughs> and I wasn't that angry which you have to be to be a stand-up comedian and and Seth in some ways is a is a better version of me as a performer he has all the qualities that I, that I didn't have he's kind of strange you know he's got that weird voice and he's gruff so he's kind of a character and he has this vicious sense of humor but he also is very sweet and, and you root for him, because as tough as he is, you kind of know his life is probably tricky. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and he's a uh, you know, real great underdog guy with a big heart who, who will always try to do the right thing. And uh, he's my De Niro, basically. <laughs> Just like Scorsese's a little man. He's got tough De Niro playing <laughs> Scorsese on the screen. I have Seth Rogen. <laughs> You could do worse. You could do, but he's but he seems like a real student of comedy. Like there's something about the his use of language, um, and and I think he's talked about Albert Brooks, for example. But he has like such an interesting delivery and choice of words, and sort of this combination of being sort of blustery but vulnerable. Hey, he's just a freak of nature. I don't really even understand it anymore. <laughs> I, I, I I read this interview with him in Playboy magazine, just for the interview, <laughs> and it just was hysterical for like 10 pages. And everything he says is phrased as an interesting insight, but also as a joke. And he thinks in comedy, and he has this voice that's built for comedy. He, he talks in a natural joke rhythm. Uh, and, 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 and he's a great mind. I'm, I'm constantly you know, surprised at, at, at the things he comes up with and the insights uh, that he has. So Okay. Okay, we're going to um, now look at... Um, Two, actually, two scenes from Knocked Up. What I wanted to do with Knocked Up um, is show these two back-to-back scenes because I think they capture... There's a lot of great qualities in them. First is um, an amazing scene uh, between Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann. 
and I think you know the film, but, but um, you know, she has, suspects that he's cheating on her and then discovers that he's actually playing fantasy baseball instead of seeing a mistress. Um, and then immediately following that, there's a great scene, I think, with Catherine Heigl and, and Seth um, in a car. So it's, it's sort of back-to-back scenes, but I think it's a great section of the film, and I wanted to show both those scenes. What is this? Debbie. What the fuck is this? It's our fantasy baseball draft. We said no wives. Your fantasy what? It's our draft. The fantasy baseball. I I told you all about this. Got Matsui. Shit. Hey, Pete, don't let the door hit you in the vagina on the way out. Come on, who's going? Prince, you're on the clock. I should have told you. What else have you been lying about? That guy says, don't let the door hit in the vagina on the way out. (laughs) Yeah, I heard him. (laughs) That was hilarious. It's just that I know you were, you've been mad because I've been working so much and I didn't want to upset you. I wouldn't be mad. I don't get mad. It's a fantasy baseball draft. I'm not cheating or anything. Oh, this is worse. How is this worse? This is you wanting to be with your friends more than your family. Look, the reason I make that up is because if I told you what I was really doing, you would just get mad. So you think I'm seeing a band, I do my fantasy draft, and it's win-win. Well, what'd you do last Wednesday night when you said you went to see a band? I went to the movies. With who? By myself. What'd you see? Spider-Man 3. Why do you want to go by yourself? Why didn't you ask me to go? Because I needed to get away, you know, with work and you and the kids. Sometimes I just need some time to myself. I need time for myself. I want time for myself, too. You're not the only one. It's not that big of a deal. I like Spider-Man. Okay, so let's see Spider-Man 3 next week. I don't want to go see it now. I don't want to have to ask you to ask me. I want you to just come up with it on your own. What, 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 I don't even know what to say. What do you want me to do? You just think because you don't yell that you're not mean. But this is mean. I'm not being mean. I'm being honest. You're telling me I need to be honest. No, this... you're not. You're lying. I'm doing it because I need to keep my sanity a little bit. You know what? I don't want you at the house anymore, okay? Come on. Shit, she's got me back. How can we go to the gynecologist so often? It's like, I, I bet we have to go so much so we can pay for that $300,000 machine here. I can just, I cannot stop thinking about what an asshole Pete is. It's a little strong, I would say. <laughs> really? Because that had to be one of the most selfish things I've ever witnessed. It's understandable, I would say. I would think it's kind of funny. <laughs> What's funny about it? Well, you won't laugh now, I wouldn't imagine, but you know, the situation, we break into the stranger's house thinking we're going to find him sleeping with a woman and it's a bunch of dirts playing fantasy baseball. I mean, if you saw that like on television, you would laugh. Is that what you think? Is that what you want to do, Ben? I don't even like baseball. (laughs) I'm just saying, when you're a guy... And, you know, you have a family and you have responsibility. You lose that male camaraderie. And I get that. I totally understand where he's coming from. Why do guys always go to that place? You miss male camaraderie. What do I give a shit? Go hang out with your bearded freak friends. I don't care. 
You want to hang out with guys that look like the shoe bomber? It's all on you, man. Well, what the fuck am I supposed to say to that? You should just support me. You know, you should just support everything I say because at this juncture in my life, I'm allowed to be wrong. So if you're wrong, I have to support yes. it? I can't tell yes. you that you're acting no. like a lunatic? No. No, okay. Oh, that's helpful. You have to do nothing. I've sacrificed a lot of shit here. to you do this. You haven't sacrificed anything. No, I've had I to sacrifice my job, my body, my youth, my vagina. You sacrificed your yes, vagina? Yes, it will never look the same after this. Well, fine. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll pay for vaginal reconstructive surgery. You can't pay for shit. You can barely buy spaghetti. You're right. Fine. Okay. You know what? Get out of the car. Oh, you know what? Well, how, why don't you not threaten me? You just get out of the fucking car. I'm not gonna get out of the car in the middle of nowhere. No. Get out of the car. No. I own this car. Get out of my car. No. Get out of my car. No. Get out of my fucking car. Can you let me back in the car, please? Have you calmed down? Take a breath. I have no clue where we are. Fine, go. Oh, that's not bad. That's great writing and directing and acting. Could you talk about the first, the, the first scene, which is that fight scene that really sort of cuts to the bone. I think any people in relationships might understand. Um, and and this, is, this is Paul Rudd's character talking to your real wife. So could you yeah, talk? That's true. My wife is here somewhere. There she is, Leslie Mann. Come on. <laughs> She was just on the Late Show with David Letterman tonight, but you guys will miss it because you'll be here till tomorrow. <laughs> they can watch it on the internet. Uh, the first but, part of the scene was based on the fact that um, I, I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, guys can't handle the pressure of, of, of having kids. And I remember when, um, when, when, when Leslie was pregnant, you know, my therapist... Uh, uh, <laughs> gave me a book and it was all about uh, the fact that men kind of have a nervous breakdown when 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 uh when babies are coming because they're the king of the house and they go from number 1 to number 3 and <laughs> you're and, and it's not really something that's spoken about that it's this gigantic adjustment for for the man and he's he's supposed to just you know make the adjustment and and suddenly the needs of the baby and the needs of uh the family go before him, and that men have these kind of quiet, nervous breakdowns uh, about it. And uh, so I was thinking about that in terms of Paul's character, and that he's you know afraid to say you know what he wants to do, and and he also is a little bit detached from the the work of the house. So he sneaks out and plays fantasy league baseball, and and starts becoming a liar basically. Uh, and, and finally, she catches him, and. Uh, and that's, it's, I've never done anything like that. <laughs> I, I've, I've thought about sneaking out to a movie. Uh, but, uh, and then in that scene, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it, you know, it's also a very sad scene because uh, it just shows you that they're in two different places about what's happening 
in the house and what their argument uh, is about. But I think that's some of the strain when you have kids. They just require so much time that there's a kind of a turf war that goes on in terms of, uh, you know, how, you know, chips. How many times do you get to go out? How many times do I get to go out? Why don't you want to be here more? But you both kind of want to break. And that's just, it's just a complicated balance that we all deal with. Uh, and that was kind of a meltdown where it all falls apart. And then the part the afterwards when, when he fights with uh, her in the car is based on another insensitivity that I have, uh, <laughs> which is not really understanding that, you know, Catherine's character basically wants him to say, you are more important than my friends now. I'm pregnant. You should not understand Paul's point of view. You should understand her point of view, uh, which is he's not committed enough to the family. Uh, and, and Seth just doesn't get it, so even when she kicks him out of the car, he really doesn't even know what happened. Uh, right. And um, Leslie did kick me out of the car once on the way to the gynecologist's, uh, and I don't remember what the fight was about, um, but and, I do, and she wasn't drunk driving like she does. She it. wasn't there. Yeah, that was, a, that was a, the Nikki scene. No, she was sober, uh, as a, uh, and, and she kicked me out, and, which is a very difficult moment <laughs> because you, you don't know what to do because, first of all, you're in the middle of Koreatown, <laughs> and you don't know where you are, and I had no money on me, and I thought, okay, I could go home now. I'd kind of like to go home and let this all cool down. Uh, but if I don't go to the doctor, I think I'm going to get in trouble. I think I, I think she wants me to go to the doctor still. Like I have to <laughs> run. I have run to, to prove the like my love and get to the doctor's <laughs> office. And I know this is hard on you, and you're hormonal, and I'm insensitive, and I'm still there for you when the doctor puts his finger in you. I'll still be there. Um, which is another great moment when you're at the doctor and they, they're always inside your wife. You're constantly like standing next to them and, and there's a great moment in the beginning of the movie where right before he does it, he just turns to Seth and goes... <laughs> and uh, you always want them to apologize. Like, I'm sorry, it's my job. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, that's what those, those two scenes uh, were, were. You know, all these scenes are based on miscommunications uh, between people. What's great about both Paul and Seth's characters in the movie, um, they each sort of say things that men just should not say, but they don't... But so Paul, there's this great scene with Paul at the restaurant where he just sort of blurts out, oh, you know, uh, you know, when you have a baby, all your dreams go away. And it's just so, like, dumb of him to say that. And, uh, and in the car, the scene we just saw with Seth, you know, the sort of endearing thing about him is that he just sort of blurts out stuff. That, that, um, and yeah, this stuff is really awful, and I think that, uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, you know, every once in a while, there's you know someone who who will say, "Well, these movies are male centric, or uh, you know they're insensitive to women." But I, I think really what a lot of these issues are is uh, women are really uh, romanticized in movies, and and these movies you know go pretty hard at having women uh, have as many uh, problems as men, and and they make mistakes that are as big as, as men. And so when someone says, like, oh, you know, knocked up seems sexist. I'm like, really? I mean, Seth, there's an earthquake and he grabs his bong before his pregnant girlfriend. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> you know, that I think, it, it, you know, it, I try to, you know, weigh it evenly so it's not really about men or women. It's just about miscommunications and, and us at our worst. Because people at their best, I kind of don't want to watch in entertainment. I don't really want to watch mature people or smart people uh, or people who do the right thing. I, I would like to meet them in life. 
but uh, that's I don't find it entertaining and certainly not funny. So you know, the worse people are, uh, the more I find it uh, you know amusing, and the more I root for them to figure their shit out. And there is that nice moment at the end of the scene when Seth realizes that he really is going to get out of the car, and he just kind of looks at her and doesn't say anything. And he's like he's, a big dog. It's like, it's, like but you it's feel all like, moving fast <laughs> for him. You know? But you feel like he's trying to figure it out. Like he's trying to. He, yeah, I mean, I always thought in that movie, you know, he is a good guy. The, the movie points out, and when you see him with Harold Ramis, who plays his dad, they're very sweet scenes, and, and he comes from a nice person. He, he, he's just, it's just. He's young, and, and he's going to have to go through this, as is she, in, in order for them to be able to be there for the baby. But it'll be a disaster for a while. Uh, we're going to get to funny people. And I was trying to think. I, I said to myself I would have to ask one question during the evening about penises, because you've yes. famously said that you want to have a penis in every movie. Is that because you're, uh, you're holding I, a, must, an object with a red tip? It, is that I, a... it could be. It could be. Yeah. Um, so as, I guess as a segue to funny people, I guess there's a scene, and I'm not going to give too much away, but there's a scene where Adam Sandler, um, you know, be, he sort of becomes a mentor to Seth Rogen's character, but at one point, um, Seth becomes like his assistant, but, and he tells Rogen um, to show him his penis. He just says, I, I just want to see what I'm dealing with here. Now, is that actually based on a true incident involving you and Adam Sandler? Uh, yeah, when I lived with Adam, you know, there are different <laughs> kinds of men out there. <laughs> And Adam was very open about certain things. Uh, he's the first guy I knew who would talk about masturbating. That was on the table as conversation. My friend uh, Kevin, my, my best friend from high school, we didn't talk about that. that you know, we knew that you know, his stepdad had penthouses. I don't think we ever talked about what you would do with them. And it was not something that we laughed about. We didn't crack whack-off jokes. Then I moved in with Adam, and Adam and I, you know, we'd be home, and he'd be like, hey, man, okay, yeah, let's, let's go to Red Lobster, but first I'm going to whack off, and then I'll see you in about 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, and then he'd come out, okay, let's go. And, uh, and that threw me. I just had never been around that before. Uh, but very open uh, and comfortable uh, with uh, sexuality. And he used to, and he had a running thing where he would always say, let me see the cock. Let me see, let me see what, what you got. I just want to know what I'm dealing with. Let me just see. And, uh, and I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to show you my penis. Let me just see it. Let's just get it over with. Get it over with. Come on. Just, just, let's get it over with. And, and then one day I was peeing and he was standing behind me. I see him in the mirror and he's just like. And then he just goes, all right, man. All right. Uh, so I, I, I put some of that I, I, in the movie, yes. And uh, so now that we've made the segue into funny people, just uh, we're going to take a break in just a few minutes and then see the film. But, but um, what can you tell us about the movie? I mean, with, with your first two movies that you directed that are sort of these very... They're kind of based on very simple premises. You know, the 40-year-old virgin, the premise is right in the title, and same with Knocked Up. Um, here you have a movie that's sort of a lot of things, as we're about to see. So what can you tell us well, before it, it we is, see it? Uh, it's sprawling. Uh, the, the story, it's, uh, it doesn't go where you expect it to go. Things don't land at the moments that you expect it to, which is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to follow a normal three-act structure. I, I wanted to tell a different type of story. Uh, and, and I like movies where it, it's just hard to know 
uh, when things will happen. Uh, so I, I'm really happy with that part of the movie. It, you know, I wanted to talk about comedians and why people get into comedy and talk about the, the troubled souls of some of the people that work so hard to make people laugh. Uh, and I also wanted to talk about when, we, when people get sick and the lessons that they get when they're sick uh, in a way that uh, is different from how you've seen it in, in movies before. You're about to watch it, so I don't want to really give anything away. But, but th- that was you know, my, my two intentions. Uh, and then I also have always been... Uh, I've always wanted to write a movie about people you know, trying to get back uh, uh, someone from their past, you know, trying to win back an old girlfriend. Um, and so that was uh, in the mix there. And you know, when Adam told me he wanted to make a movie together, I quickly went through the notebooks and realized that these three ideas maybe could work as, as one idea. And um, I guess just sort of a general question, but of course you, um, Leslie Mann has been in all your films, but this is her biggest role in any of your, of your films, and your daughters who we saw in Knocked Up are very important in this film. So what was that like? I mean, having them in the film, having Adam Sandler play somebody who used to be you know, in a relationship? Okay. Uh, it was great. I, I think that you know, when people are very intimate with each other, there's a different level of the work and people reveal things they wouldn't reveal to strangers and there's a shorthand and uh, and it was wonderful. Leslie adores Adam and they've known each other for 14 years and my kids have known Adam and Seth since they were born and you, you, it just, you can get uh, stuff that you, you couldn't get if you just cast the movie and, and Leslie is a, a brilliant actress and, and viciously funny in ways that she doesn't quite understand and so it's always fun to uh, unleash her in these situations. Uh, we shot a scene with Adam uh, one day, and Adam, uh, it was a sad scene. And it was a, when we rehearsed it, four months before shooting began, Leslie, on take one of just a rehearsal, and Adam was like at his hat on, he's not even paying attention. Uh, and, and Leslie starts doing the scene and just crying and getting deeply upset in a hardcore method. I'm not here to fuck around kind of way. And Adam just went white, like, oh, geez, i got to pay attention here. i got to up my game a little bit. And, uh, and, and I think that, that the trust between friends allows for uh, something that you don't usually see on screen, and that's what I'm most proud of with, with, with everybody in the movie. And the last thing I'll ask you, because it, it kind of, I guess in a way, brings it, you full circle back to your start of your career when you were doing stand-up yourself. Did you, and you, I understand, did a little stand-up during the process of making I, the film? I did some stand-up to write the jokes and to remind myself of how terrifying it was. <laughs> and I made everybody do stand-up to prepare for the movie, and we shot a lot of stand-up and tried to shoot it like a documentary so it wasn't, didn't feel staged and constructed later. Uh, and, uh, and I think those sequences are, are, are pretty good. We watched a lot of movies that had stand-up in to figure out where people did a good job. <laughs> we decided Lenny... Everything's yeah. stolen from Lenny in terms of the stand-up. I mean, the, <laughs> Bob Fosse knew what he was doing, clearly. And all those angles, I mean, they're, they're, they're just beautiful uh, sequences. And what was it like for you to be out there again doing stand-up? Uh, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I enjoyed doing it. I'm happy to not have to keep doing it, but I, I, I did okay, and I did well enough that now that I'm not doing it, I kind of feel like I was better than when I quit when I was 25. So I, I sleep better at night knowing uh, it's still there. You know, if, uh, yeah. if, if I, this career falls apart, I, I can go uh, to the comedy hut. Well, I don't think the career is going to fall apart, but um, I really want to thank you. It's very generous of you to be here tonight. Thank you, everybody.
Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.